Good many of you have probably seen the movie The Princess Bride. Raise your hand if you've seen The Princess Bride. Uh, it tends to be more this generation in this services movie than, than our previous one, but, but having seen it, you're familiar with the Sicilian would-be crime boss Vizzini and his preferred exclamation every time he fails to outsmart Wesley, the movie's hero. What is that exclamation? Inconceivable, he says, with a, a slight, I guess, Sicilian lisp uh, as he does it. And, and in the most memorable scene in, in Vincini's uh, short life in the movie, he, he cuts the rope that Wesley is using in disguise to scale a cliff after Vincini and his entourage, thinking that by cutting the rope, he will finally be rid of Wesley. But he cuts the rope. And he remains in pursuit. He grabs onto the, the sheer cliff and he continues to climb. And Vicini says what he says, inconceivable. To which his companion, Inigo Montoya, replies, you keep using that word. I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> now there are a lot of words whose meaning is misunderstood and misused. Using further when you mean farther, or vice versa. Using anyways, when you mean anyway, because anyways is not a word. <laughs> Thank you, we'll get applause for that. It's a pet peeve, I'm sorry. It's not a word. Um, but, but the only casualty in those misunderstandings is your grammar teacher's heart. Otherwise, life continues to go on. But there is a misunderstood word whose misunderstanding has led to a misuse that is, is catastrophic, really, to your spiritual well-being. And it's, it's catastrophic to the spiritual well-being of every person that you love. And it's pervasive. It's so pervasive that every single problem that you can point to in every single church that you have ever been a part of can ultimately be traced back to misunderstanding this word. So what is this pervasively misunderstood but highly important word? It is the word disciple. Quickly, I'm asking you right now in your mind to craft the definition. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? Craft the sentence in your head. Maybe if you need to, write it down. What is a disciple? And I want you to hang on to that definition as we uh, continue this morning because we're going to dive into a passage of Scripture that will either reveal that you understand what a disciple is or maybe that you don't understand really what a disciple is at all. It is our passage of Scripture today, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6. I hope you've already opened your Bibles, found that passage. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, if you're familiar with the book of 1 John at all, you understand that what we just read is pretty indicative of how the whole book goes. Every, everything that the, the book does from here on out is actually a variation on the theme that we just read. It is written to a group of people who are certain they are saved, but John is trying to let them know that they are not, or also a group of people who wonder if they really are saved. And John is trying to encourage them that indeed you are. So it's written really to, to, to everybody who is here today. It is written to all of us so that we can know for certain that we are authentically in the faith. And he begins that journey in this book by admittedly at a 30,000 foot level giving us a definition of what it means to be a disciple in the first place. And there are two key things that come out of the passage for us. Here is the first. A disciple is devoted to obedience. Devoted to obedience. In verse 3, John simply says, if you know God... If you have an authentic relationship with God, if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, if you know him, you will keep his commandments. Now let's look first at what John means when he speaks of knowing God. In his language, he writes the phrase with the intent of communicating, we have come to know God. Meaning that when he uses the word know that comes to us in English, he is referencing the continuing result of a past event. Now, the past event that John is, is considering here is the public profession of faith in Jesus Christ that has been made at baptism. So that the weight of what he's asking us to consider is this. How can I know now that I was really saved back then? And the answer that he gives is whether or not I am keeping commandments. And he states the same thing in a negative way in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That person is not genuinely saved. And so, positively, we can know that we know God. We can know that we are saved now based on what we did back then. If we are obeying the commandments of God, and we can uh, have every reason to doubt that we were authentically saved back then, if we are now not currently keeping the commands of God. But frankly... If you think about that very deeply at all, it might present more problems than it solves. Because a question that we would naturally ask would be this. Must I be completely obedient to the commands of God to know that I am saved? Or negatively, must I be completely disobedient? to the commands of God to conclude that I am not saved. But let me, let me say something to you. Those are the wrong questions to ask. 
One way that we can know that that is the wrong question to ask is because of what John has just said numerous times in 1 John chapter 1. There in that chapter, he has said numerous times that none of us can claim to be without sin and that an ongoing practice of a genuine follower of Christ will be the ongoing confession of and repentance from sin. So it is plainly inconceivable proper use of that word, to think that John is saying here that in order to be certain of your salvation, you have to be completely without sin. Instead, John is asking his readers to consider whether their lives are characterized by trying and regularly succeeding in keeping the commands of God. In other words, the question we need to be asking as we determine whether or not our past profession of faith is genuine and whether uh, we can be confident that we're saved now based on what happened back then is whether or not our lives are characterized by an obedience to the commands of God. Now, there is a way that we can all wiggle out of that little trap. We, we tend to do it. It's human nature to try to grade ourselves on a very generous curve. And so uh, we answer the question, well, yeah, I, I'm characterized by, by being a good person and obedient, and, and so everything's okay, and I can breathe a sigh of relief. But let's make sure that we don't race past that question too quickly. Because, you see, it would be very easy to construct an answer to that question that grades us out okay by measuring ourselves merely by moral and religious criteria. And that will never work. Here's what I mean. We could answer that question morally by saying, well, I don't drink, dance, smoke, or go with girls who do. So I must be genuinely saved. I don't lie, steal, or cheat on my wife. So I must be genuinely saved. Or we could answer the question religiously by saying, well, I go to church, pray, put money in the plate, so I must be saved. I... I read my Bible, say grace before dinner, and know all six verses of amazing grace. So, I must be saved. But you can be moral and religious and not have genuine faith. How do I know that's true? Because John is writing to a church. His audience is a church. And in that church, there are people who are moral and religious, who are not genuinely saved, but think that they are. And so, how can we know that our lives are characterized by a devotion to keeping God's commands and therefore that we are genuinely saved? Let me suggest to you that there are a couple of tests. It's not comprehensive, but a couple of tests that you can administer to yourself to ask yourself, is my life characterized by the obedience that John is speaking of? First, ask yourself, is the object of your obedience God himself and his glory? It's an important question. Is the object of your obedience God himself and his glory. What John is asking people to assess here is whether or not their lives are characterized by God-directed obedience. The commands that the genuine Jesus follower are to follow are God's 
commands. So measuring our lives by American morality and American uh, evangelical religion is not relevant to determining the authenticity of our faith because those things can be very me-centered or cultural-driven and not be God-directed. In Colossians, as a matter of fact, this has long been a problem. In Colossians, Paul says that these things, this morality, this, this, uh, this religious stuff, have the appearance of obedience, but are really, and this is how the King James Version of Scripture translates it, really are will worship. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. Look how good I am. Aren't I something? Please notice that I am something. So, ask yourself, is the reason that I am on this effort to be obedient because I want to glorify God? Because I want the attention to be drawn to God. Because, because I, I want to exalt Him with my life. That's what it means to be characterized by obedience to God. The next question to ask is this. Am I waging war with sin in my life? Notice I didn't say am I having victory over sin in my life. If we were to believe first John, uh, uh, the, the idea that Christ in us uh, will have victory over, over sin. I'm not, I'm not saying, have you, have you had victory over sin in your life? I, I'm asking you, are you continuing to wage war with it in your life? Because the person who is truly devoted to be obedient to God's commands won't be focused on the victories of the past, but on those that still need to be won. Here's why I can know without a doubt that a prideful legalist is not walking with Jesus. Because they are absolutely certain that there's something. When I am living out God-directed obedience, the closer I get to the white hot holiness of God, the more and more the wax of my own self-righteousness begins to melt, and I cry out to God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I have things in my life for which God has long ago given me victory over, but I've got a, a list that is a thousand miles long of things that I still have to work on. That's, that's warring against sin. Not ever being confident that you've arrived, but knowing as you get closer and closer to God that there's more and more to work on. That's counterintuitive. We think we reach a status of spiritual life where we're, we're just good. And really there is always in the growing Christian a holy restlessness saying, what else is there, Lord, that doesn't honor you? And help me be obedient to you in that area of my life. So, as we consider the de definition of what a disciple really is, we must construct our answer around the idea that it is someone who is devoted to obedience to God, living out, characterized by God-directed, God-glorifying obedience. And then ultimately this, a disciple displays Jesus, shows Jesus. Look at the last part of verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John's made a subtle shift here. 
in the language that he's using. Earlier in our passage, he discussed being a Jesus follower using the term uh, no. And the word no in scriptures carries with it the idea of a relationship. That is why it is used over and over again in the Old Testament as uh, a euphemism for the, the physical relationship between a husband and wife. But here, John doubles down really on this idea of salvation being a relationship by using the word abide. John is asking this then. How can we know that we abide? How can we know that we live in? How can we know that we have a relationship, an authentic relationship with Christ? And his answer should sound as a thunderclap to catch the attention of cultural Christianity pervasive in our world today. Because he says that the test of authentic Christianity isn't, isn't a culture-based morality and isn't culture-based religion. It is whether or not my life increasingly displays the life of Christ. A disciple's life becomes a canvas upon which Christ paints himself. This is what it means, ultimately, to be obedient. It means that my life begins to become like the life that Christ would live if he were me. When Jesus speaks of abiding in him, he always connects it to the idea of that, that he's also abiding to us. It's reciprocal. We abide in him. He abides in us. And so the fundamental psychic reality of every Jesus follower is that the life of Christ is fully integrated into the engine room of our life. So much so that our engine's taken out and it's replaced with him. And so as we seek to be to be God-directed in our obedience, it's because Christ in us is pushing us in that direction so that His life can begin to flourish in our own and show forth in our own. A mature follower of Jesus is growing in their maturity to the degree, not that they know a lot of things, but that they are looking more and more like Jesus. That breaks me. That breaks me. Because I got paper on my wall that says I know stuff. And my entire adult vocational life has been spent diving into this word. I know stuff. But there's still so much of my life that does not display Jesus. All of us are that way. This is what it means, ultimately, though, to be a disciple. It means that our lives become more and more like Jesus. It's not that knowing stuff is unimportant. In fact, John will say numerous times in 1 John that we must believe correctly in order to be genuine in our faith. We cannot be sincerely ignorant of the things of God. But the ultimate measure of being a disciple is becoming more and more like the Jesus that we believe correctly about. So a disciple is someone who is devoted to obedience, to God's commands, who are living out a God-directed obedience, and in doing so, displaying the life of Christ in their own lives. As a matter of fact, the reason that there is God-directed obedience in my life is because the life of Christ is being displayed in my life. It's reciprocal. And, and our elders have gravitated to this understanding of what it means to be a disciple over the past few years. And this led us to craft a statement that conveys the philosophy of discipleship that we hold to as a church. Here it is. Discipleship is the process of following Jesus 
using the spiritual disciplines so that our people actively engage Jesus to live their lives as Jesus would live them, and then we personally teach other people to do just that. It's the idea, folks, of doing what we have always been instructed to do, to read our Bibles and to pray and to memorize Scripture, but to do it differently. Because you see, all of us tend to start, most of us tend to start New Year's saying, you know what, I'm going to do better spiritually. I am. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to read it every day. In fact, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to read all the way through the Bible. And right now you're still doing good because you've not gotten to the last part of Exodus yet. <laughs> but here's what happens when your motive is just to do it. You can never get away from yourself in it. I'm reading my Bible. Check. Now it's time to pray. I'm praying. Check. Now it's time to memorize Scripture. I'm, I'm memorizing Scripture. Check. And at no point do we stop and consider that the purpose of reading and praying and memorizing is so that we can engage the life of Jesus so that his life can begin to flow through ours. At no point do we do that. So we have to do these things that we've always been instructed to do, but take the target off of the doing of them and off of ourselves and instead do these because you have every intent of meeting with Jesus. You say, okay, well, what does that look like? How does that work? I've said this to you before, but I'm going to say it to you again, especially important at the beginning of the year. You can do this through the little practice of praying Scripture. There's a great little book by Donald Whitney. I've recommended it to you before. It's in our library, but because I mentioned it to the first service, I promise you they've already checked it out. So, so when we're done and you turn your phone back on, get on Amazon and order it. It's called Praying the Bible. Let me summarize for you what this little book tells us to do. It tells us to pray the Bible. It's just really that simple. To begin to read our Bibles in such a way that we engage Jesus, have a conversation with God about it. Let me tell you how that worked for me today. I am more easily irritated by nothing on Sunday mornings than any other day of the week. I just am. And it's been magnified this week. My bird dog, Piper, <laughs> uh, had uh, three different kinds of surgery this week, you know, just maintenance stuff. And so when you pick, pick them up at the, at the vet, the vet says, now I need you to make sure she doesn't run or jump for two weeks. <laughs> A German short-haired pointer bird dog whose gas pedal is mashed to the floor Make sure she doesn't run or jump all week long. Okay, buddy. We'll do just that. So you've got that going on. And so I'm trying to go over my sermon notes this morning and, and, and Piper's running around and we have another dog, another bird dog. What idiots we are. Um, we, we have another bird dog named Penny and they're running around and Piper, don't. Penny, don't. And it just, you know, so I'm living with this kind of low-grade irritation. And then just any little thing pops up and you like that. But here's what... I began to realize, and what I've started to realize, is the reason that things more easily irritate me on Sunday mornings is because I'm under spiritual attack. God wants me distracted because I have a very important job for you all to do. And so when I caught myself with that this morning, I thought, okay, what do I do? Well, 
I need to engage the life of Jesus. And so I began to meditate on Scripture. As I finished up my morning and driving into church, I began to meditate on Scripture. And the Scripture that came to mind was uh, the, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And I began to go through those verses. And I came to the verse that says, He guides me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. And that did it for me. And I turned my attention based on His word to God. And I said, God... I need you this morning to guide me in your righteous paths. Because I'm running down roads in my head right now that are dumb and unproductive. And I need you to guide me in your righteous path. Help me in my interactions with people to live out what your word that you inspired says that you are. That was more than just remembering a verse. That was meditating on Scripture so that the life of Christ could begin to come out of me. And so any victory that I've had in that this morning is not because Derek has this incredible willpower. It's because Jesus showed up in that area as I talked to him about his word. That's a simple thing you can do. I beg you to do it. And some of us are absolutely in desperate need to do that. Because of your doubts. You doubt whether you're saved. Part of the reason you doubt whether or not you're authentically saved is because you're not being God-directed in your obedience. And you're not letting Jesus paint his life on the canvas of your life. But here's what John says in the part of this that I skipped, the first part of verse 5. It says, But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. What does that mean? It means that the person who has God directed obedience and whose life is becoming a canvas upon which Jesus paints his life has a full awareness that they abide and exist in the love of God. That there's, there's no reason to doubt anymore. And so, and so part of the reason that there is doubting here today is, is because you're hung up on an understanding of what it means to be saved that's based so deeply on a past event that you're never considering today. So some of you doubt that you're saved today because you can't really remember all the details of that long, long ago event. And so you worry all the time, did I say the right words? Did I really mean what I was saying? And what John is telling us today, tell me about today. Tell me about your life. Are you living with a passionate desire? Not perfectly, but a passionate desire to honor God with your obedience? Is there a growing Christ-likeness? Not perfect. I'm not saying you're perfectly like Jesus. But is Jesus showing up in a change of your behavior and actions? Then listen, understand that that's what a disciple is. The love of God is being perfected in you and you can have confidence in that. But at the same time, there may be a valid reason for your doubts here this morning. It may be that this morning you doubt... Because you remember long ago clearly an event, but have not paid any attention to what happened out of there. And today, God's Word is shining a bright, bright light on today and asking you, is there God-directed obedience in your life? 
Are you characterized by that? Would people who know you and love you say you're becoming more and more like Jesus? Is your life characterized by that? If the answer to those questions are no, then you have every reason to doubt. And the purpose of me bringing all of this up is not just because we came to that section of 1 John. As your pastor, I bring this all up because I do not want you to be comforted by something that's not authentic. And I want you to have an absolute confidence when you leave here today that you have made a surrender to Jesus, either a long time ago or today for the first time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.